Well, in 1891, James Naismith invented the game of basketball. Naismith was a professor at Kansas University, and he was looking for some kind of an activity to preoccupy his athletes through the winter months between football season and baseball season. Naismith came up with the game of basketball. When he invented basketball, he compiled a list of just 13 rules. That's all there was, 13 rules. Today, the official basketball rule book contains 50 articles, each with multiple subpoints. The international basketball rule book is 81 pages long. That's a long way from James Naismith's 13 rules. The expansion of the rules of basketball is a testimony to the human tendency to complicate whatever we touch. We gravitate toward, from simple toward complex. We love to add rules and restrictions and explanations, and this is especially true when it comes to religion. Take, for example, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see, the law of Moses gave broad, general instructions to observe one day in seven as a day of rest and work. I'm sorry, a day of rest and worship. Work was forbidden on the Sabbath day. But the Jews felt compelled to define what constituted work. You couldn't wear your dentures on the Sabbath day. You couldn't strap on your artificial leg. You couldn't lift a child on the Sabbath day, or you would be carrying a load, and that would constitute work. A man could spit on the ground on the Sabbath day just as long as he didn't scuff it with his shoe. If he did, he would be watering and cultivating the soil and therefore working. You know, in reality, one man's work is another man's relaxation. (laughs) Some folks see gardening and yard work as therapeutic. It's a healthy diversion. It's a way for them to unwind. I think of yard work as more... I think I would rather join the chain gang than pull weeds and work in flower beds. I'll put it that way. And this is why God gave us this general command concerning the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day holy. But then he left the details of its observance up to each person's own conscience. Tragically, though, the Jews couldn't leave it at that. They went to great effort to define what constituted work Page after page after page in the Jewish Mishnah and the Talmud are devoted to the subject of Sabbath observance. You know, it's been said of the American legal system, we have 35 million laws trying to enforce 10 commandments. Well, that's also a good description of Judaism. And yet Jesus came to simplify. The Jews had smothered the intent of God's law under a thick blanket of their own interpretations. Jesus wanted to restore the spirit of the law, and that's what he attempts to do here in Luke chapter 6. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, according to the legalistic Jews, the Pharisees, 
There were four things that you couldn't do with the grain on the Sabbath day. You couldn't reap, you couldn't thresh, you couldn't winnow, and you couldn't, you couldn't cook. There could be no plucking, no shucking, no separating, and no eating on the Sabbath day, or no cooking on the Sabbath day. Thus, when the disciples, when they rubbed the grain between their hands, and then they blew off the chaff, and then they ate the dry cereal, they were guilty of all four forbidden stipulations. Can you believe eating your Wheaties would be considered a sin? You know, it's interesting, the traditions of the Pharisees also prohibited a Jew from traveling more than 3,000 feet from his home on the Sabbath day. Makes you wonder what these cats are doing out in the field somewhere, scrutinizing the breakfast habits of Jesus and his disciples. It was so hypocritical. To catch Jesus breaking the rules, they had violated their own rules themselves. Well, verse 3 tells us, But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? Of course, David was the Jewish champion. All Jews respected David's heart for God. And yet when David had fled from Saul, he stopped by the sanctuary on his way out of Dodge. He and his men were tired, and they were famished, and they were starving. The priest wanted to strengthen David's troops, but the only food on hand was the sacred showbread. And according to God's law, only the priests could eat this bread. And yet, David didn't hesitate. Like Jesus' disciples on the Sabbath, David ate his Wheaties. He ate the showbread. It was the breakfast of champions, no doubt about it. David and Jesus both broke a ceremonial law in order to keep a higher moral law. Let me give you an example. Normally, driving 80 miles per hour is a violation of the law, wouldn't you say? Unless you're rushing a person in critical condition to the hospital. All of a sudden, a higher law has now superseded a lower law. Well, Jesus was trying to showcase a basic principle to the Jews that they'd failed to recognize. Human need always trumps. It always takes precedence over religious ritual. In God's eyes, compassion on people is more important than tradition. At times, the letter of the law needs to be violated in order to keep the spirit of the law. That's what Jesus and his disciples we're doing in the grain field on the Sabbath day. And then Jesus, he adds a kicker. He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> this really ruffled some feathers. Jesus is saying that he is the lawgiver. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He was the voice from Sinai who gave the law to Moses. Jesus was the Lord of the law. And if he gave it, then he can change it or he can supersede it at his prerogative. In other words, Jesus wasn't bound by his own law. And this infuriated the Pharisees. Verse 6, now it happened on another Sabbath, also that he entered the synagogue and taught. 
And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. Another Jewish prohibition on the Sabbath day, believe it or not, was healing. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath day. That was work. Now, you could stop someone from dying. But if you improve their condition, it was considered work. It was not allowed. By this time, everyone knew that Jesus loved people. And if there was a needy person in the house, Jesus would probably just heal him. The Pharisees probably planted this fellow with the arthritic hand in the room in order to trap Jesus. Well, verse 8 tells us, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Jesus is making him an example. He's about to teach them a lesson. And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus is the one who springs the trap. He's saying, how can a good deed ever be unlawful or evil? I mean, what's more important here? Maintaining a tradition or saving a man's life? And when he had looked around at them all, and I love what Mark adds, Mark 3 verse 5 adds, he looked around with anger being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, I haven't had a withered hand, but over the last three months, I have had a withered thumb. I cut my tendon on my thumb back in May, and I still can't bend it. And it's odd. I'm used to telling my thumb to bend and then watching it actually bend. But I no longer have that capacity. This man's whole hand was arthritic. It was curled up in a ball. He couldn't stretch out his fingers even if he wanted. And now Jesus gives him an impossible command. He says to him, stretch out your hand. Hey, did you realize that all faith is the willingness to act on an impossible command. That's what faith is. You were born in sin. You've been a sinner your whole life. There is nothing you can do about your sin. And yet Romans 6 verse 11 commands you, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. The word reckon means to consider it so. Thus, the moment you believe and act as if God's word is true in you, then it suddenly becomes true. This is what happened to the man with the withered hand. The moment he believed he could stretch out his hand, God made him abundantly able. And here's how faith works. God calls you to be this, or he calls you to do that. And yet you say, oh, I can't do that. It's not in me to be that. And it's not. But if you act as if it is, if you believe, suddenly God will make you able. If you provide the willingness, God will give you the ability. He'll work a miracle. Jesus told this man, stretch out your hand. 
And amazingly, he did. And the Jews rejoiced and they praised God. Whoops, that's not what it says. They were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What a terrible reaction to a glorious miracle. Now here's what angered the Pharisees. They could tell everyone else what to do on the Sabbath day except God. God wouldn't keep their commands. And that ticked them off. You know, we say the Pharisees rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God, and that's true. But the opposite is also true. They weren't ready for God. And so they rejected Jesus. You see, they worshipped a God in a box. A God that they could control. A God who would bow to their own terms and play by their own rules. The true God is wild and woolly. He blows up our traditions. He does what he pleases and expects us to bow to him, not vice versa. And so the question for us is, are we ready to follow the real God? Well, verse 12 tells us, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now at the time, Jesus is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's near the town of Capernaum. And just south of Capernaum, there is a mountain that towers above the lake. Its steep face rises out of the water. It's known as Mount Arbel. And to me, a trip to Israel is not complete without climbing to the top of the Arbel. The view there is so panoramic. It's such a special spot. It's remote. It's quiet. It's majestic. It would be the perfect spot for prayer and meditation. It may have been here on this mountain that Jesus spent this night in prayer. We're told when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. The word disciple means learner or follower. The word apostle means one who is sent out, an ambassador. The two words combined include a progression or indicate a progression. You see, Christians begin as learners, but we're not intended to stay learners forever. Jesus has marching orders for all of us. The time comes for each of us to act on what we've learned. I know Christians who've been learning forever, but they've never acted on anything they've learned. Disciples eventually become apostles. Jesus told 12, chose 12. Now the 12 apostles, they were the men who would start the church and literally spread the Christian gospel around the world. Choosing them wisely was extremely important. And this is why it's no surprise that Jesus spent the night beforehand in prayer. And if it was important for Jesus to pray before making his decisions, (laughs) how much more important is it for us to also follow in his footsteps? You know, taking a few minutes to pray can save you a lot of hours trying to straighten out a bad decision. Jesus prayed before he made his choices. And in the next three verses, Luke names the 12 men that he chose. Simon, whom he also named Peter. 
and Andrew, his brother. Then James and John, also brothers, by the way. So he chose two sets of brothers. Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. Now the Zealots, they were a radical paramilitary unit. They were bent on using violence to drive the Romans out of Judea. They were Jewish freedom fighters, you might call them. Whereas the tax collectors were just the opposite. They were Roman collaborators. The Jews saw the tax collectors as sellouts. Now imagine Matthew and Simon on the same team. We're talking about mortal enemies. That's not to mention an impulsive Peter and a cautious Thomas. I mean, what a diverse band of personalities and priorities here. Obviously, Jesus wanted to show the world that allegiance to him could transcend major differences. That's why he chose such a diverse group of disciples. Then he finishes the list in verse 16. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, here's a very provocative point. If Jesus prayed the night before, then Judas Iscariot was an answer to his prayer. Isn't that interesting? I would have asked the Lord, please, Lord, weed out any troublemakers. Keep me from choosing any betrayers, any Judases tomorrow. But God's ways are not our ways, are they? You know, sometimes... He has a purpose for putting difficult people in our lives. He does. He can use them to help us. He can use us to help them. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. Now, the Arbel's eastern slope is a sheer drop-off right into the water. But west of the summit stretches out over level ground. It forms a plain Perhaps it was here that Jesus then met with a crowd of his disciples. And a great multitude, Luke tells us, of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. And notice that all were healed. Nobody was left out. No one went home that day untouched by God's love and power. Jesus saw to it. Verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now the rest of Luke chapter 6 is very similar to Matthew chapters 5 through 7 which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And there are scholars who are quick to pick up here on some discrepancies. They assume that Luke 6 and Matthew 5 through 7 are the same sermon. I don't think so. The sermon in Matthew was delivered on a mountainside. Here, the people assemble on a plain in a flat, level area. I don't think there are any discrepancies at all here because I think what you have is a different sermon. 
delivered at a different time in a different place to different people. There's some repeated content. Matter of fact, you listen to my sermons long enough, you'll hear some repeated content, especially the jokes. There's some repeated content. There's some similar structure, but believe, believe, I believe that there were two different sermons. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus begins his sermon, verse 20. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. One of the misconceptions that humans make is to assume that wealth and health and happiness are indicators of God's blessing, whereas poverty and sickness and sorrow are signs of God's curse. You remember, this was the source of Job's confusion. Job was innocent of any wrongdoing, and yet tragically, calamity still struck. Job's troubles threw a wrench in the prevailing theology of his day. Likewise, Jesus rebuffed this kind of kindergarten theology. Jesus taught that a person's physical situation had nothing to do with his spiritual status. A rich man is not necessarily blessed. And a poor man is not necessarily cursed. In fact, Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who hunger now and who weep now. Why? Since God sees to it that they eventually laugh. And they'll eventually be full. You see, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God is not about the here and now necessarily. The tables will be turned when we get to eternity. The haves on earth will be eternity's have-nots. And today's have-nots will be heaven's haves. He goes on, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Jesus promised us in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. You can count on it. God's kingdom and the world system are locked into mortal combat. If you live for Jesus, you will inevitably draw fire from the people of this world. It reminds me of the guy in heaven who was asked by the angel, he said, hey, did you do any kind deeds when you were down there on earth? The fellow said, well, sure. Once a hell's angel jumped off his motorcycle and started picking on this little old lady. I grabbed him by the jacket. I kicked him in the shins. And then I told the old lady to run for help. The angel said, wow, how brave. When did this happen? The fellow looked at him and said, oh, about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> you know, there may come a time when you're attacked physically. But here Jesus is talking about more social persecution, hate and exclusion and reviling and slander. You will be mistreated by your co-workers. You'll be slighted. You'll be scorned. You'll be left out. You'll even be slandered if you live for Jesus. And when it happens, Jesus tells us how to react. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner the fathers, their fathers did to the prophets. You will be treated unfairly for Jesus' sake, but when you do, when it happens, take heart. Leap for joy, Jesus says. Consider yourself blessed. Know that you're doing something right. 
Persecution on earth is proof that we're living a life pleasing to God. One proof. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is the rich man who's satisfied with this world's riches. You know, he he doesn't have time to lay up treasure in heaven. He's accumulating it all right now. This fellow's being extremely short-sighted. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn and weep. Boy, live for a stuffed stomach or a stuffed bank account for that matter, and you'll lack eventually. Waste your life partying and laughing, and you'll cry for eternity, Jesus says. Life is more than fun and games. Serious issues are at stake. And then he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Boy, if everybody likes you, you're probably in trouble with God. (laughs) Try to be everybody's friend, and you can't be God's friend. You know, we all offend somebody. You'll either offend the people around you or you'll offend your Father in heaven, one or the two. I'll be honest with you. I'm much more concerned about offending God than I am about offending you. Jesus said, but I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Boy, it's hard to love those who love us. (laughs) It's impossible to love your enemy. And again, like the man with the withered hand, here Jesus gives an impossible command. Love your enemies. Who among us has the strength, has the wherewithal to do that on our own? None of us. I don't have it in me to love my enemies. But the moment I supply the willingness, the moment I choose to obey, God makes me able. Just like the man with the withered hand. Stretch out your hand. And he was made whole. Love your enemies and you'll receive the power to do so. I I like what C.S. Lewis once said. Do not waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. In other words, you obey and God will work a miracle. Always remember, God loved his enemies. So he's not asking us to do what he hasn't done himself. And remember, who were God's enemies? Who? Romans 5 verse 10 tells us, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Who were God's enemies? You and me. We were his enemies. Yet God loved us. He loved his enemies. Therefore, we should return the favor. And notice how Jesus tells us to love our enemies. This is interesting. He says, pray for them. Pray for your enemies. You see, you can't pray for someone without looking at them through Jesus' eyes. And once you see them through his eyes, 
then you begin to love them. And a love for them begins to grow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all our hostilities. If we knew their story. Well, pray for your enemies. And then Jesus says, To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now, a slap on the cheek was not a physical assault in that culture. It was an insult. Jesus isn't teaching us here pacifism or nonviolence. You can't infer from this passage that war is always wrong or that the death penalty doesn't have a place in God's plan. There are occasions when the loving act may be to forcibly stop someone else from inflicting harm on you or on society at large. Jesus is just telling us here that when you're insulted, when someone disses you, when someone makes fun of you, slough it off. Just turn the other cheek. Don't don't respond to an insult. He's not telling us that if a guy breaks into our house at night with a a knife to harm our family, that we shouldn't defend ourselves. In fact, I'm going to blow him to smithereens with my shotgun. And, and, and be faithful to God in doing so. I'm actually going to be loving him. I'm going to make sure he doesn't ever do that again to anybody else. I'm just going to be taking good care of him. He goes on and he says, And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Again, Jesus isn't telling us to be a doormat here or to be a victim. He's talking about our priorities. He's talking about our rights. What is your priority? Is your priority to love people or is it to demand your rights? Here's the challenging question for, for us. This is the question Jesus is asking us. Am I willing to give up my rights in order to show someone else my love? For example, my right to dignity. Oh, you can slap me. You can insult me. But that's not going to stop me from loving you. Or, or what about my right to possessions? You can take my coat if you want to because your soul is more important to me than my shirt. Je- Jesus is teaching us to make a radical commitment to, to repay hatred with love. He's telling us to fight, to fight back, but to overcome evil with good. Abraham Lincoln once said, the best way to destroy your enemy is by making him your friend. In fact, that's the only way to get rid of your enemy, is by turning him into a friend. This needs to be the goal, the Christian's goal in the world. Well, verse 31 is is also called the golden rule. Here's how to treat people. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. 
and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. What an amazing verse that last verse is there. God is still kind to ingrates and rebels. He's still kind to teenagers. How about that? He's obviously rich in mercy and in grace. You know, J. Oswald Sanders once wrote, The master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. And again, this is true here. Anybody can love someone who loves you. But what's the kind of love that Jesus describes? To love your enemies. This is impossible love. This is love that takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to love the unlovable, to love the ingrates, and to love the rebels. And yet Jesus is saying, stretch out your hand. You provide the willingness and he'll make you able. You know, it's been said to injure an enemy puts you below him. To take revenge on an enemy makes you even. It's only when you forgive your enemy that you rise above him. And indeed it's true. Jesus wants his followers to aspire to a higher standard. Verse 36 tells us, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. I like what Martin Luther King Jr. once said. He says, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. (laughs) How quickly hatred turns to bitterness. You know, we could rationalize away the first half of this verse. Be merciful. We can rationalize that and we can still justify a little harshness we have towards certain people if it were not for the second half of the phrase. He says, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. Oh boy. Now it becomes inescapable. The mercy we know from God is the mercy we should show each other. Now it's inescapable. And then Jesus says, judge not... And you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Once there was a man, he was summoned for jury duty. He didn't really want to be there, and he was hoping to get himself disqualified. And so he came up to the judge, and he pointed to the man in the courtroom, and he says, I know that guy's guilty. To me, he looks like a crook. He he just... Walks like a crook. even smells like a crook. I know there's no way that man could be innocent. There's no way I could give him a fair hearing. He's a crook. The judge turned to him and said, go back to the jury box. That's not the defendant. It's the district attorney. Hey, when Jesus says don't judge, he's not talking about biblical judgments. When I call homosexuality sinful or Mormonism heretical or Allah a false God I'm not making a personal judgment it's not my preference or my opinion at stake I'm simply pointing out what the Bible has already determined what the Bible has already judged we're supposed to make those kinds of judgments what Jesus prohibits here are judgments based on my prejudice or preference, or tradition, arbitrary judgments, not grounded in the Word of God. He says, judge not that you shall not be judged. 
Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You're stingy in your giving, you'll be stingy in your receiving. You know, it'll be given back to you in the same measure that you give. The phrase, put into your bosom, what a strange sounding phrase for us. It makes sense only once we've seen the ancient Hebrew tunic. It had a fold at the waist of the tunic. It was kind of fluffy right there around the middle so that you could use the fold in the tunic as sort of a pocket where you could carry grain or you could carry things in your robe. Jesus is saying here, if you give, he'll see to it that he fills your pockets. In other words, you can't outgive God. You give to God, he'll give back to you. Press down, good measure, shaken together and running over. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. In other words, be careful who you follow. Did you know you can follow the wrong person straight to hell? You can. I I often tell folks, never follow anyone until you know who that person is following. He says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? And of course, Jesus is being comical here. You know, he's saying a hypocrite. He makes a big deal about the toothpick in your eye, while the whole time he's got this huge two-by-four coming out of his own eye. Once there was a lady, she was critical of her neighbor. She looked out the window at the laundry hanging on the clothesline, and she sneered. She said, my neighbor's such a sloppy housekeeper. Just look at the streaks in her wash. Her friend responded, pardon me, but those streaks aren't in her wash. They're on your window. A hypocrite focuses on your problems while ignoring the major issues in his own life. Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Deal with your own issues. Then you'll be ready to help out the person who has the problem near you. You know, speck removal is delicate work. It's a delicate procedure. You're not going to touch my eye, you know, unless I trust you. No one's going to come and touch my eye unless they've dealt with the speck in their own eye first. And so take care of your own problems, and then God will use you to help others. Verse 43, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. Now Jesus is condemning hypocritical judgments. But again, as I said, not all judging is bad. There are times when you have to judge, when you have to size someone up. And Jesus is saying here, when it's necessary, don't just look at the person's outward appearance. In other words, you never judge a tree by its leaves. 
You've got to look deeper. You judge it by its fruit. And the same is true with another person. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In winter, a tree has no leaves. But don't write it off as dead until the sap has time to rise. Likewise, don't judge a person until you you get to know their heart. Take the time to listen to them. For what's on the inside will rise to the surface if you give it time. What's down deep eventually rises to the top. It becomes evident. And this is what Jesus does here in verse 46. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? You know, you can talk the talk and not walk the walk. You can, a person can profess a loyalty that they don't possess. Jesus is saying that, hey, we, once we get past your words, then we'll find out what you're all about. He continues, for whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Now notice the man with the solid foundation. He isn't just a hearer of Jesus' sayings. He's a doer. He says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them. This is what it takes to build a solid foundation. Not just hearing the word of God, but doing it, applying it to your life. This builds a solid foundation in your life so that when the storms come, when the floods come, you can withstand them. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And implied in the parable is that the only difference between these two houses was their foundation. They looked just alike. The difference, though, was the foundation. And you didn't know the differences in the foundation until the floods had come and until they had beat upon the house. And so it is in life. It's in the hard times. It's the storms, it's the difficulties that reveal a person's true allegiance. It's the storm that exposes the foundation of our lives, what we've been building on all along. I like the old adage, and I'll close here. Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside them until you put them in hot water. You never know what the house is really like, what it's been built on until the storms come. Until the floods rage. And there we have Luke chapter 6. Next Wednesday night, I want you to read Luke chapter 7 and 8. We'll try to cover a little bit more ground next week.